Hello, you're listening to a special episode of the Science of Everything podcast, Dinosaurs and Popular Culture. I'm your host, James Fodor. So in this special episode, I have a discussion with the I Know Dino podcast, uh, which some of you may be familiar with, and we talk about dinosaurs and their presentation and representation in popular media and their uh, understanding and misunderstandings in popular culture. And we discuss quite a range of topics, including uh, dinosaur appearance, uh, their habits and behavior, um, the different uh, varieties of dinosaurs and how accurately they're depicted in media. And we also cover a bit of the history of uh, un- uh, paleontological understandings of dinosaurs and how that's been reflected uh, in uh, movies and, uh, and other popular media. So without further ado, let's transition over to the recording with the I Know Dino podcast. All right, so we're doing something a little bit differently this week, or maybe I should say this episode. We're going to be talking about dinosaurs, and it's a collaboration this week between I Know Dino and The Science of Everything. We'll be talking about dinosaurs and really how they intersect with other fields in science and also why they are so compelling and why they're such a big part of popular culture. Yeah, it's an exciting topic. I'm happy to be here. So our first topic for discussion is why dinosaurs have captured so much public attention. I have a lot of thoughts about this. I'm curious, James, what you think about why they're so popular. I did a bit of reading about the history of dinosaurs in popular culture. Um, And uh, it seems like it was in the late Victorian period when the fossils first began to be sort of scientifically... Uh, studied that it really captive, uh, captured a lot of people's attentions. Um, and then more recently in the later 20th century with um, some of the more uh, popular expressions in film, like Jurassic Park being one of the big examples, uh, it's sort of uh, led to a bit of a renaissance. I mean, I don't, have a, I don't have a very good answer to this. I'd be interested what your insights are, but I think one of the major factors has to be just how large the creatures are. Yeah. Um, I think anything that big is particularly being land creatures um, is, would, would be likely to capture people's attention, as well as that we don't have that many large uh, reptiles on that are alive at the moment. So that's sort of quite different to anything that, uh, that that's alive currently. And I think that naturally attracts people's attention when it's something so big and so different. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So I should put some like names and dates on it, maybe as like the background yeah, of sure. when in Victorian times. So Dinosauria named by Richard Owen in 1842. Basically, he noticed the similarities between Iguanodon, Megalosaurus, and Hylaeosaurus and figured these should be grouped together. There's so much in common between them and named Dinosauria. But then it wasn't really picked up. It wasn't like today where if you know someone would post online, there's this new group of animals. It would be like overnight. Yeah. It went like a decade plus because... The first real public display of dinosaurs was Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins in 1854 with the Crystal Palace dinosaurs. Mm. And so these are like these big sculptures. They were for a big sort of like World's Fair type thing that got a lot of people excited, but it was kind of localized. You know, again, it was like we didn't have photography quite yet then. And there were some drawings and some people were really excited about it, but it didn't really become a global affair. Then... In the U.S., the first lifelike mount was Hadrosaurus in Pennsylvania in 1868, which was, again, the same kind of thing. It was like some local people got excited. It drew, apparently, hundreds of thousands of people from, like, the nearby vicinity to the museum. But, you know, 
is still local in a way. And really what kicked it off, I think, from my perspective, was the Bone Wars, which was yeah. Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope. They were competing. They ended up naming Stegosaurus, Allosaurus, Diplodocus, and Triceratops, which are still some of the biggest names in all of dinosaur fandom, I guess you could say. And also in terms of dinosaur research, people are very interested in them. And that really took dinosaurs to center stage. And then also on top of that, when dinosaurs got another point, I guess, going back across the pond, you've got Andrew Carnegie or Carnegie got involved in this exploration of dinosaurs and he found Diplodocus in a couple of quarries. And actually the King of England requested a Diplodocus for his own museum, <laughs> the Natural History Museum in London. And that became Dippy, which sort of really, now in London, a lot of people on a permanent display have time to see it. And then back in the US again, Barnum Brown in the earliest 1900s found T-Rex. And that went on display at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. So. Between those two, I think it, we finally had a permanent installation in London, a permanent installation in New York. And like you said, some of the biggest animals, T-Rex basically the biggest land predator, Diplodocus one of the biggest things ever to walk, herbivore or carnivore. And it started showing up in all the comics and movies and everything like that. So that's, I think, maybe the starting point of it. But then the, the why is very interesting. Like you said, maybe it's the size could be that they're reptiles there's a lot of answers yeah it's i mean it's always hard to know what uh why popular attention gets attracted to particular thing to particular um well to particular anything really um mm -hmm. i think also i mean there are there are many other interesting um uh types of animals that existed you know in the past and uh i think some of those tend to get um well i actually uh, like some of the um some of the creatures that lived alongside at the time of dinosaurs, like uh, the pterodactyls, for example, um, that are lumped in with dinosaurs. And so the way that the, the way that the word is used in popular culture isn't the same as it's used scientifically. So in some sense, it's, it's not as, um, it's not that people are specifically interested in dinosaurs as such. It's that they're interested in sort of um, large, fascinating creatures from the past. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because even the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, which I referred to, they call them dinosaurs and they say it's with a capital D and they refer to it as like the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, sort of in quotes, uh -huh. includes all of their animals. And they go way back, you know, they go back before dinosaurs and then they go all the way up to basically the present with like the giant elk. <laughs> and they just call them all dinosaurs because that's what people do. Yeah. Well, that's definitely not a dinosaur, but yeah, that's interesting. So I know you're very interested in, or maybe I shouldn't say very interested because you are interested in a wide variety of topics. I was very impressed with the breadth of content on your podcast. But there, one of the things that I don't know as much about is psychology, and I know that you're interested in psychology. Do you think there's some psychological aspect to why humans are so fascinated with these creatures that were bigger than us and are now extinct and those details of dinosaurs? Well, that's interesting. I, I've heard speculations about this sort of thing before, about whether there's some sort of evolutionary um, basis for, obviously not, well, presumably not dinosaurs per se, that would be going back rather a long way before humans, but perhaps with reptiles. 
I don't know that there's been any actual study of this. I, I don't, not quite sure how one would study that. And I, I, I think it's probably not very likely because I don't think we would have had, I mean, the, the human environment of evolutionary adaptation was in um, the savannah of East Africa. And I, I don't think there would have been many instances where humans would have been particularly threatened by reptiles in that sort of environment, at least as far as I know. So I think that that is probably mostly just speculation <laughs> about whether there's like a particular reason that humans are fascinated with dinosaurs or, or reptiles but you know it, it's hard to say uh it's hard to say for sure but uh, yeah honestly i expect that that humans have more uh, evolutionarily had much more interactions with other mammals um i don't know and maybe maybe uh, and you know many of the animals we know about like domesticated animals farm animals are, are mammals so perhaps that just contributes to the fact that um reptiles seem so different to us yeah that's a good point but I don't, yeah, I don't know that that's an evolutionary adaptation so much as more of a social one. Yeah, but as you were saying it too, I was wondering, does it matter that they're reptiles and not mammals? Because maybe from sort of a just visceral feeling of it, just this thing that is that much bigger than you, whether it's an elephant mm -hmm. or a, a hippo or <laughs> a tyrannosaurus, it might all sort of conjure up the same sort of emotions of like, whoa, look at that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I certainly think that's a factor. People are interested in uh, large animals uh, like elephants, for example, although people certainly think about elephants or, or even I'd say hippos um, differently to dinosaurs. Um, but yeah, it's a, uh, I, I think dinosaur has a, uh, maybe there's a historically contingent aspect there that, you know, Tyrannosaurus was one of the earliest discovered and like popularized dinosaurs. And it's very well, you know, it's very scary looking, <laughs> yes. uh, especially the way, I mean, maybe there's even an aspect here about the fact that we only have, um, like the, the way that they're typically presented is in, uh, the, the skeletons and the skeletons emphasize, like it, it kind of looks a bit, I don't know, scarier to be as a skeleton for, but also it emphasizes things like the teeth, which mm. would survive, but then it looks more threatening. And then, so it looks more ferocious. I think if you, if we only saw if we only saw uh, elephants or hippopotamuses as, as skeletons, maybe we'd, we'd think of them a bit differently. <laughs> I don't know. but uh, So maybe there's a few things going on there. That's an excellent point because, yeah, we, were, we just did a recent episode on mammoths and we were talking about, you know, they have tusks. Many of the species had tusks on the top and the bottom. And that's similar to hippopotamus. But people don't think of the tusks mm -hmm. on a hippopotamus because they have these big fleshy lips covering it. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, that... that view of t-rex as having these big sharp teeth where really the teeth that they often show are way below the gum even that you would see you know mm. in the skull so even with it living if it had its teeth exposed and it had its mouth open it probably looks even scarier as a fossil <laughs> where you can't see yeah yeah or you can see so much detail of those big menacing teeth yeah, so it's um and and once once a certain conception exists in popular culture, then that's something that people play into with the way the exhibits are designed and the way people talk about it and so on. So maybe it's sort of self-reinforcing that dinosaurs are kind of scary and ferocious and large, as you know many of them weren't, but uh, you know th those are things people expect, and so that's what draws the crowds, I suppose. So yeah, maybe maybe if there were um relatives of dinosaurs that lived today that were like large reptiles, maybe not exactly the same, but if that, ex if that was the case, then perhaps uh, it would be very different. But um, yeah, that's true. Hard to say. Yeah. And the, it's a good point too, when you were saying, 
you know, there's a, the fear factor to it because the least popular dinosaurs are definitely the least scary as well because <laughs> yeah. like nobody cares about hadrosaurs. They don't care about the early ornithopods that are like these small little things. Most people don't even know they exist. People mm. think of triceratops with the big horns that could poke you. They think of stegosaurus with the tail with the spikes, T-Rex with the big teeth. And the ones that just kind of looked more like normal animals that we might be used to today, in a way, everybody just sort of ignores those because <laughs> they're no longer interesting, I guess. Yeah, and that relates to the way they're often portrayed in media as well, um, which is, I mean, I don't think if you if you made, maybe there are some examples of this that I don't know of, but I don't think if you made a dinosaur movie that didn't have dinosaurs ripping people's heads off, people would be very <laughs> interested. Like, you've got to put that in, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, th there's probably lots of other stories you could tell about dinosaurs, but that, that's that's what people expect and that's what they want to see, I suppose. So it's kind of self-reinforcing is the way that they're perceived. Yeah, that's true. I think some of the funniest movies are the early, going back and looking at some of the early ones that had sauropods as like the big, you know, the long neck dinosaurs as the mm. like big villain because they tend to have sharp teeth and you've got this thing that we know just ate plants, but it's like... Yep eating people whole <laughs> and all this good i think i've seen some of those they're very strange <laughs> from well, from from a modern point of view but yeah. yeah the lost world had a little bit of it because they brought back like a brontosaurus or a diplodocus or whatever to london and then it breaks free and rampages through the streets and it's like eating people <laughs> and knocking them down with their tail and everything because it's like that's what the people went to the movie theater to see they want to see that spectacle mm -hmm. of the dinosaur attacking People don't want to see them just like in a nature documentary stance because they're like, no, they're too exciting. Let's see them do something. <laughs> yeah. Although, yeah, that being said, um, Walking with Dinosaurs, I mean, that's a little old now. I remember that when I was a kid coming out. That was very popular. And that, um, I mean, I guess it, it, it did play up some of the things about like ferociousness and size um, to get interest, but it was much more of a kind of simulated nature documentary kind of style. So uh, Very true. That was quite popular as well. So, you know, maybe there's uh, maybe there's still an avenue there. But Yeah, Prehistoric Planet recently was sort of in that same vein too where they showed dinosaurs. It was produced by BBC in a very like Planet Earth style where oh, it was yeah. like this is the animal in its natural habitat, not necessarily always fighting or... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, there is still some fighting though because mm -hmm. like you said, it's you can't really avoid it completely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe that would be a good point to talk about the the next question then, which is about how um, uh, the, the accuracy of the presentations of uh, dinosaurs in media and what sort of typically they get wrong and what they get right. And, and that leads me to uh, something that I was just thinking about with what you were saying is that one thing, this isn't just true about dinosaurs. This is something I've noticed in pretty much any depiction of any wild animal or like even monsters or anything in any media, which is that they they seem to always be hungry and mm -hmm. when they, you know, when they catch prey, they like bite at it a couple of times, but then they just want to catch another prey. They're not satisfied with what they have, which doesn't seem very realistic to me. I, my understanding would be once you've caught prey, then you would um, want to protect that. And there's no real reason to then go looking for something else. But this is, um, I mean, obviously that's done for sort of dramatic effect, but it's always kind of annoyed me when, when the animals behave in sort of a bizarre way. But... Maybe there's other things that uh, have caught your attention about media portrayal of, of dinosaurs. That's a great point. That is not one that I think I've ever brought up before because mm. you're 100% right. Animals hunt to get food. They don't hunt because they feel like it's not like they're just trophy hunting yeah. <laughs> for the sake of, look, I killed this thing and you didn't think I could kill it. 
Yeah. So for me, I think the biggest thing that I notice is also that like ferociousness, the lack of any sort of animal, like real animal behavior to mm. them. They're not usually shown as parents, which we do think that most of the predatory dinosaurs probably had a little bit of parental care because that's how a lot of predatory animals are today. They right. teach their, their young how to hunt. Um, so certainly there would have been at least some of that in some of the dinosaur species, maybe, maybe not all of them all the time, but you'd expect to see some parental involvement. There's also that, like I mentioned, the wrong teeth, like you get on the, some of the herbivores become carnivores for the excitement yeah. factor. Um, also, a big one to me is dinosaurs living together that didn't actually live together. So like Stegosaurus fighting T-Rex is always maybe the most obvious one to me because our little fact of we live closer in time to T-Rex than T-Rex did to Stegosaurus. <laughs> There's no way Stegosaurus was ever interacting with a T-Rex. Yeah, so, so T-Rex was during the Cretaceous. When was Stegosaurus? So, yeah, T-Rex was the very end of the Cretaceous, yeah. and um, Stegosaurus was the end of the Jurassic. So they had, like, the full Cretaceous in between them. Right, but right. the Cretaceous is very long. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's something that people... Well, I don't know that that's specific to dinosaurs. I think people have trouble... I mean, I put myself in this category. People have trouble really comprehending just how long, like, geological time is and how... Yeah. Uh, long millions of years really means um and when dinosaurs are talking about tens of millions of years so yeah i think that's one i can kind of understand when you're putting dinosaurs in media you want to pick the best <laughs> ones <laughs> you don't yeah. want to be restricted by what why what um what actually existed alongside each other although sometimes they have excuses like in the movie jurassic park when they're cloning yep. dinosaurs they can kind of well cloning dinosaurs is suspect but if you think they, they can do that then presumably they can clone whatever they want so i guess that aspect uh, makes sense although they, they kind of talk about this more in the book than in the movie but in the in the book they explore the idea that because they're trying to reconstruct an an ancient ecosystem that's long since extinct and they're kind of doing it in this haphazard way combining different animals and plants from different times they don't really know how it's going to behave and so they kind of overestimate the control they can have over it i don't know that this was explored too much in the movie but it's quite an interesting aspect of the book actually and i thought that that was a sort of an important insight because like you could you know if you could somehow clone a dinosaur that would be one thing but it wouldn't it wouldn't exist in anything like its original environment with other species and the plants and like the temperature of the planet would be different. There'd be all of these things that um, it would uh, presumably change how it behaved. And so it, you wouldn't even have a, a, like a full idea about what the dinosaur was originally like. Yeah. So I think that's that's one aspect where it comes to like mixing dinosaurs from different time periods is that you can't really just pluck a, an animal out of its environment um, and out of its uh, it, when it existed in time and understand much about how it behaved or um why it like functioned the way it did um because you know all of those things are, uh, are crucial to determining that yeah that's a really good point and i agree that jurassic park's strategy with it was a good solution because like all good sci-fi it makes you take one leap like okay if we had the yeah. scientific advance and then everything else can kind of flow from that so once you get the ability to clone these ancient dinosaurs, sure, you can clone as many as you want from whatever time periods you want and stick them together. But you're right that it wouldn't be that simple as now they're all just back. And we, because <laughs> like even just as simple as what they ate, there was the one scene in Jurassic mm -hmm. Park, the movie where the Triceratops ate the wrong plant and the like botanist is like, what are you doing? You know, this is obviously a poisonous plant, mm. which 
is kind of funny because it's like, yeah, it's poisonous to certain animals today, but like poison isn't one thing to all animals. So it could very well be that you try to feed it something that you think, oh yeah, most herbivorous animals can handle this. And it turns out to be poisonous to a dinosaur or mm -hmm. yeah, just the different animals interacting with each other and not knowing what to make of their surroundings or the temperature, like you said, because it was a lot warmer for much of the Mesozoic could be a big problem. Yeah, well, the, the composition of the atmosphere was different as well. I wonder if that would even pose difficulties for dinosaurs. Yeah, it was. There was generally a little more carbon dioxide and a little bit less oxygen for certain periods. But again, they were around for so long. Yeah, that yeah that's true. <laughs> it depends which Changed dinosaur you're talking about. Yeah, mm. so that might that could be a problem in and of itself. There might not be one atmospheric condition that works for all the dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I was think I was also listening to your episode recently on metabolism and thinking about like amino acids and whether or not they would have the right diet or the right plants still around that match with what their metabolism requires. Like, could they even sustain themselves? Yes. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that as well. I don't know really anything about dinosaur biochemistry and how much it differs <laughs> from. <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah, I don't know. Maybe you could maybe um, species like crocodiles that have been around for a long time might give us some. Uh, insight into that but yeah I don't know how much that's been studied obviously that doesn't fossilize very readily yeah I liked your point where you were saying in that episode that originally there's a good chance that we could synthesize all the amino acids and then we sort of lost yep. a few abilities over time because maybe there was a lot of food that we were eating that had those amino acids so our body our adaptation was basically like well why bother making it if you're just eating it all the time anyway mm -hmm. So maybe that's a point in favor of the dinosaurs because maybe they had more ability. They hadn't lost all of it yet. If anything, maybe the modern animals are more sensitive to m losing things from our diets. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it could be. But the, I mean, if there's one thing I've learned studying nature, it's that there's always more complexities yeah. that you didn't understand until you run into them. So I imagine that if, if we did somehow um, figure out how to clone dinosaurs, that people would probably have to spend decades just figuring out how to feed them and how to keep them alive in the atmosphere and how to you know prevent them from like killing each other or like interacting socially and like all of these other things that, you know, like even keeping animals that are quite close to us and that we understand relatively well in zoos is a very difficult uh, is a very difficult feat. And I, I imagine that would be just extraordinarily difficult to do that with dinosaurs when the ecosystem is so different. So I, I do like that, that they kind of did explore that aspect um, a little bit in the movie, more so in the book, because um, I think that would be one of the major challenges of dinosaurs. Um, and that, that's not something that you, you really see explore much in, uh, explored much in the, the popular depictions. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, too, keeping them breeding would be incredibly difficult yeah, because yeah. we think a lot of them had very unique and specific nesting behaviors for like the type of soil, maybe being near either volcanically active environments or using certain types of compost potentially for keeping their nests warm and trying to simulate that and getting that all ready for them. Mm. You better hope you are really good at cloning so that you can try yeah, and yeah. error for a long time. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's a challenge to get um, uh, endangered species breeding in, in zoos. Uh, in many cases, so I can imagine it would be even harder with dinosaurs where we know less about them. In terms of other aspects of um, accuracy of depictions, um, one common um, complaint is that many, especially, well, I don't know if this is changing much, maybe you'd know more about this, but certainly many depictions of dinosaurs don't uh, show them with feathers, when particularly many of the later dinosaurs, uh, like raptors, would have had feathers. That's one uh, that people bring up about Jurassic Park a lot. Um, although, interestingly, I think so Jurassic Park's an interesting case because they, they mentioned that they 
the way they cloned the dinosaurs is that they had a lot of gaps in the DNA, which you would, and they filled it using frog DNA and presumably they made a bunch of assumptions and other adjustments as they went. So theoretically, they may have removed uh, the feathers um, to make the dinosaurs appear more ferocious or something. So I can, I can actually kind of buy that the dinosaurs that they constructed wouldn't have actually been authentically what the dinosaurs would have looked like, which is another uh, interesting aspect that I like to think about. But um, are there any other aspects particularly about the appearance of dinosaurs that uh, strike you Yeah, from the popular presentations? That is a good point because that is the perfect weasel out of in- yeah. <laughs> inaccuracy that Jurassic Park did. It was a stroke of genius genius by Michael Crichton. Yeah. Like, what? yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not really a dinosaur, so don't worry about all these details. And then in the book, too, he did fun stuff like the, I believe it was Carnotaurus, if I'm not mistaken, could go invisible. It had like cuttlefish DNA or something. So it oh, could just be yes, invisible. I remember that. You could just do so many fun stuff if you're like, no, it's got DNA from all sorts of things. Um, it's just fantastic. But yeah, the the feathers are a good one. We don't know for sure if all the dinosaurs would have had feathers, but certainly mm. the raptors are the big one, you know, the velociraptor type one. But speaking of velas- velociraptor, the, the big thing that it sort of got wrong with velociraptor is the dinosaur named velociraptor proper, properly, the genus velociraptor, is much smaller than the velociraptor that's in the yeah. movies. It's like the size of a turkey. And it is interesting, though, because while they were shooting the movie, basically, there were paleontologists out in the field who found a relative of Velociraptor, another rap- another raptor that is named Utah Raptor now, which is roughly the size of the Velociraptor that's in Jurassic Park. So it's almost like it just had the wrong name, but there was a sort of similar animal in existence. Yeah, I didn't realize the Utah Raptor was such a recent discovery. So, yeah, that's another... But uh, that's another thing that I that I've thought about as well because yeah the, the Velociraptor like historically was was much smaller and wouldn't have been very intimidating to, to humans. But uh, again, I could imagine that like this is interesting when it comes to the popular um, presentation of dinosaurs. Like if you if you were building a dinosaur park, you probably wouldn't want to call it Utah Raptor. That <laughs> sounds a little bit weird. Like why is it named after yeah. a U.S. state? Um, you might just call them raptors or maybe Velociraptor if you wanted it to sound because that sounds more ferocious, I think. And, you know, some people will be like, that's actually a Utah Raptor, but most people wouldn't know the difference yeah. anyway. So it, it sort of it, it sort of emphasizes that the distinction between like 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 actually understanding the, the creatures that you're um, engaging with or just like presenting them as a spectacle. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things I, I think about Jurassic Park as a, as a movie and book is is the emphasis on how wanting to produce a spectacle, whether that's to make money or for our own satisfaction or, or whatever it is exactly, uh, can undermine the idea that can undermine the effort to actually understand the creatures. And in the case of Jurassic Park, that leads them to like lose control and other things like that. But I mean, in reality, it's not likely to be so um, have have that much of an effect. But it's still, I think it's a it's a reminder about the importance of. Uh, try, trying to learn about things in, in a more detached way, not in a sense that you don't care, but you're just like more sensitive to, I don't know, not sensationalizing things or <laughs> getting getting overexcited because it's, uh, yeah, um, you know, so different. But uh, yeah, the, the the size one is interesting. That um, I was reading one of the links you posted about the uh, comic books. Um, someone who'd analyzed presentations of dinosaurs in comic books, which was very interesting. And they mentioned that there was a tendency to exaggerate the size of, of some of the dinosaurs. I saw one image of a pterodactyl uh, taking on a, I think it was a Spitfire, yeah. like a World War II airplane, and it was much larger than us. I was just thinking that that was rough. <laughs> um, yes, rather yeah. imaginative. Um, it, it, I think... 
I suspect a pterodactyl probably wouldn't have been able to keep up with the Spitfire either. Although I'm oh, not definitely not. Sure how fast Spitfire, uh, how fast pterodactyls went, but there wouldn't have been hundreds of no. miles per hour. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How close issue. they would be, I'm not quite sure, but definitely not keeping up. <laughs> they yeah. could catch them on the ground. That's probably about it. I agree. The size, the size part of it is a really big part, and I think in general, in the Jurassic Park movies too, that everything's like maybe fifty percent bigger mm. than you would expect it to be in real life. I think the Velociraptor was scaled up even more, but that was sort of to put it on human scale. Yeah. It's kind of the goal. You know, it was like a movie thing. They wanted to be eye level with the people and yeah, yes. fitting through the kitchen doors and all that kind of stuff. So that kind of made sense. But the name thing is interesting that you mentioned using the name Velociraptor because it's a little more evocative than something like Utah Raptor. Mm. And there was this book, this proposal that came out right before Michael Crichton wrote Jurassic Park to synonymize some of the other raptors, some of the other close relatives into the genus Velociraptor. So Velociraptor would have been the name right. of multiple species. And one of those was Deinonychus, which was bigger than Velociraptor. And that was sort of more what the book version of yes. the quote unquote Velociraptor, it was really more of a Deinonychus. So it wasn't quite as much of a size difference in the movie from Deinonychus to their version of Velociraptor as Velociraptor to their version of Velociraptor. But yeah, there's there's always a lot of license with the size. I think it makes sense though for that sort of dramatic effect. You want something human scale and then you want things that are enormous. Like you said, maybe it has to take on a plane. <laughs> so <laughs> what are you gonna do? You gotta scale it up in order to make that work. Mm. Now, one thing that I've read about um, when preparing for this episode, which did surprise me, is apparently T-Rex weren't actually very fast. Um, mm. That surprised me. It just for no other reason that they have such long legs. Um, I would have figured that they could have moved fairly quickly, but apparently not. Um, yeah, it's that's one of those where there are a lot of there are a lot of opinions, and there are a lot of papers, and there are a lot of sort of back and forth on how fast they were. So I think the current consensus is maybe in the teens of miles an hour, which is still fast. I mean. A human can only sprint at about 20 miles an hour-ish mm. if you're in decent shape for a pretty short distance. But the bigger thing for, in terms of at least T-Rex and humans, because for some reason that's the first place my head goes, even though <laughs> we didn't coexist, is they're not nearly as agile. So, you yeah. know, a smaller animal wouldn't really have to worry about T-Rex, not because of its speed, but because of the agility and the ability to get into burrows and all those types of advantages. Mm. But something like a Triceratops... The thing with T-Rex is it really doesn't have to be faster than everything that lived with it. It doesn't have to be faster than all the hadrosaurs and all the ornithomimosaurs like Gallimimus running around like the flocks of them in Jurassic Park. It did end up catching it in Jurassic Park, but it wouldn't have to because if it was faster than Triceratops, and we know that T-Rex did occasionally eat Triceratops from bike marks on Triceratops, that might have been all it needed. Mm. You know, it doesn't, it's like that you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to run outrun the slowest person that's yeah. also running from the bear sort of <laughs> analogy. Yeah, yeah. And there was also the potential for younger tyrannosaurs to be much faster. So even though the uh. largest adults might not have been fast, some of the smaller ones, and they took a, they had a very slow growth curve for most of their adolescence. And then they had this big spike, actually pretty similar to humans where we, in the teenage years, have this really big growth spurt. So a 10-year-old T-Rex might be able to chase down some pretty fast prey, whereas a 20 or 30 year old T-Rex might not be able to. 
that um, leads me to something that I don't think I've ever read about before. How how long do we think dinosaurs lived for? Oh yeah, it's it's pretty variable. So T Rex was like around thirty years, are like the biggest ones that we have, and also the oldest not surprisingly, around 30 years. But there were some other dinosaurs, like the Allosauroids, so relatives of Allosaurus, including like Carcharodontosaurus, which is sometimes you'll see it like, it's even bigger than T-Rex. It's this one from Africa, and they have relatives in South America that it, they were also very large predators that had small arms too. Pretty similar to T-Rex in a lot of ways. But we think those might've lived like 50 to 60 years. And oh, the wow. way they can tell that is they slice into the bone and they have, just like trees, rings in the bones that show you this slower growth period, presumably in the winter when things yep. are a little bit slower, there's a little less food available and their bones grow a little slower, just like tree rings do. And you can count those rings up and figure out how old they are. It's a little bit trickier with dinosaurs because they're hollow in the middle. So the older they get, the bigger that hollow spot gets. But if you look at enough of them, you can kind of interpolate or extrapolate how many of those rings might be missing in the middle of the bone and get to an estimate. So yeah, some of those. And then sauropods, the long neck dinosaurs, are maybe the hardest ones. They don't have as good of those growth rings in them, maybe because they were just growing all the time because <laughs> they were so big. But we don't know exactly how old they would have gotten. A lot of people guess that they would have been, yeah, 60, 70, probably pretty old if they got to an adult size. Hmm. They wouldn't have had as much pressure on them to stay fast and at like peak physical condition because at that huge scale, the odds are they didn't have a lot of predators. So they might have had a lot of young dying, just like turtles on a beach trying to right. scamper to the ocean. But once they hit a certain scale, they might have just been big enough that they didn't have to worry about predators so much. Maybe they just kept growing. Aging. Yeah, well, that's what I read, that the very large sauropods probably uh, didn't have any natural predators because they were so large. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting thought. Um, it is. I guess it's kind of like elephants, although I do know elephants occasionally get attacked by large groups of predators. Hmm. But I think that's a pretty uncommon occurrence. Yeah, the the size of dinosaurs is just... Uh, never, <laughs> it's never hard ceases. to wrap your head around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In terms of other things that movies get right and wrong, really, if you start with Jurassic Park, they get almost everything right because they were sort of the state of the science in 1993 mm. in terms of their posture, their overall metabolic activity rate. You know, they weren't like slow and lumbering. Their tails aren't dragging. Yeah. They've got a fair amount of intelligence. They've got, you know, herbivores eating plants. They're showing their teeth properly reconstructed. They're basically right other than the scale of them are wrong a little bit. Some of them are missing feathers. And you also get the a couple of interesting choices like Dilophosaurus having a frill and spitting venom, which are just sort of way out there in terms of... Yes, yeah. I, I don't know why they decided to give that one a frill. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think I can understand the venom from a... I don't know, maybe they just like the visual. I, I'm, I think I'm so. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, that, that one seems to have been a bit of license, but... Um, it could be another one of those. Well, they mixed in the cobra DNA and we got yeah, yeah. this Dilophosaurus doing this strange thing. Yeah, it could be. could be. Yeah, I think it's... Um, depictions like um, Jurassic Park have really done a lot to move dinosaurs back into popular consciousness. Um, and particularly, as you were saying, the more modern presentation, which I think emerged around the 60s and 70s, the more modern understanding of dinosaurs as being relatively um, fast-moving compared to 
how they'd previously been thought to be and more intelligent. Um, and uh, obviously that makes for a more interesting depiction in, in media. Um, it, it, it is interesting to see some of the, because I have uh, seen some of the old, like early 20th century, uh, like often cartoon depictions of, of dinosaurs, and they are they are very different. I guess that depicts how they were sort of understood at the time. Um, it's just kind of lumbering, you know, dragging the tails. And uh, and also the posture was, was quite different as well. Um, yeah. Than, yeah, we than often describe it as like the kangaroo posture because it's sort of like fully upright, at least the bike, yes. the ones like T-Rex and stuff, sort of way upright, like a person wearing a T-Rex costume sort of <laughs> stance well, yeah. more than anything. <laughs> yeah, whereas the more modern depiction is essential. Well, I don't know how quite to describe it, but they're more sort of hor- the, the body is more closer to parallel with the ground. Yeah. Um, Yep, so almost like the head and the tail are the ends of a teeter-totter and they're sort of balanced yeah, around yeah. the hips and the feet. But just basically the way they show it in Jurassic Park is the mm. easiest way to describe it. Yeah, so I, I, if anything, it looks like the public um, presentation of dinosaurs has improved quite a bit uh, with um, things like Jurassic Park and um, the like BBC documentaries. Um, so it is, uh, it is encouraging that science communication can sometimes work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess. It's also, yeah, the the connection between science and popular culture is very interesting, too, because even something like T-Rex, that's like the scientific name. That's not a shorthand name Mm. for an animal. Like, you know, when you say a polar bear, it has a completely different scientific name. Whereas T-Rex, it stands for Tyrannosaurus, and then that becomes T, because you can always abbreviate the genus name. And then Rex is the species name. And I can't think of any other animal where people are as as interested in the science where they actually learn the scientific name of animals where basically every dinosaur is known by its scientific name at least in english i know in some other languages mm. they have nicknames but it's it's interesting like stegosaurus it's stegosaurus <laughs> triceratops is triceratops people are very involved with it yeah that's interesting i hadn't thought about that aspect before but i think one of the aspects there has to be that um dinosaurs are only known through scientific research so there aren't there weren't pre-existing common names um, like there are for many other animals. Although it's also true that even um, even less common animals that people wouldn't be familiar with, they'll still, um, like polar bears might be a good example, actually. That's not <laughs> not one that most people have much interaction with. Yeah, they still use a common name for it. But uh, I think, I mean, there's also, I think, a tendency to compare new animals or new potentially like unfamiliar animals to us uh, or to a culture to existing animals that are familiar. Um mm. An example that uh, comes up from the Australian context actually would be koalas, which um, not so much here, but um, I think elsewhere and still sometimes you you hear them called koala bears because they kind of look a little bit like bears, but they're not really anything like bears and they're not related to bears. Um, But I think it's it's sort of natural for people to make that, uh, make comparisons to things that they know about. But for dinosaurs, they're so very different that um, I think maybe that's, uh, yeah, less of a common thing. But yeah, I don't know. I guess probably it's also a factor of the fact that dinosaurs were popularized through museums, and so they tended mm. to show, um, you know, the the scientific names, and that's sort of caught on, and so that's what people call them. But yeah, that is an interesting phenomenon. That's a good point with the the similarity to modern animals too, because I was thinking like there's the quote unquote saber tooth tiger or saber tooth cat, which yeah. also we know from fossils, but like you said, it's similar to a modern cat, so you can give it a nickname or you know, there's things like terror birds, which are these giant, you know, sort of like ostrich creatures that were predatory dinosaurs. 
technically, um, <laughs> that went extinct by the time we were talking about them, at least. And But they look like birds. So yeah, terror bird, you could come up with that name. Yeah, and some of the, ex- uh, some of the extinct megafauna tends to be called um, just after modern versions, like the giant yeah. kangaroo or giant, um, what was it? giant sloth would be another one. Um, mm-hmm. There's probably other ones. Um, I'm kind of lazy as a name, I suppose, but it, it's sort of easy to communicate, I guess, what it at least looks like, whether it's necessarily related or not. Um, but yeah, dinosaurs, we, we haven't had that. So yeah, it, it is nice to be able to refer to animals by uh, more or less the proper names. It does get yeah. a lot more attention on them too when a new species is found because yep. it's all of a sudden a new thing that you could talk about in common like vernacular whereas if there's a new species of bird or something it's like well nobody ever talks about it by its <laughs> name like that so it's like okay it's just another hawk yeah well people like, don't not... yeah people don't typically distinguish the species of many animals anyway so that's true <laughs> having a new one doesn't necessarily mean very much yeah. um yeah i think um the last question we had was how can learning about dinosaurs help to learn about other fields of science i think we've already kind of highlighted that a little bit because we've We've talked a bit about how other aspects of uh, the, um, uh, you know, the Mesozoic world, like the atmosphere, for example, and the plant life um, and biochemistry uh, affected dinosaurs and like potentially uh, would influence uh, how they would behave today if we were to try to bring them back or things like that. So, I mean, this is the point I sort of made before that you can't just sort of pluck a creature completely out of its environment and expect to understand it. Um, you need to understand the context in which it lived and that automatically brings in a whole bunch of other scientific uh, fields. Um, but yeah, did you have thoughts on this on this issue? Yeah, I do. <laughs> so I think, like you were saying, the environment itself around the animals is not only something that you need to understand to or- understand the animal, but understanding the animal does help you understand some of the environment around yeah, it too, because yeah, yeah. they're so interrelated. So by studying dinosaurs, one of the most interesting things to me about dinosaurs is that the first dinosaurs sort of evolved in the shadow of a huge mass extinction from the Permian to the Triassic. Mm. And then when they became the dominant life forms on land on Earth, it was in another great extinction, the largest extinction ever, basically, at least for land animals. Um, And that was the Triassic to the Jurassic boundary so then they like really took off there and then they went extinct obviously and got replaced sort of in a way by mammals at the end of the cretaceous so they're sort of bookended both in terms of their rise and in terms of their extinction by these mass extinctions so and then there are these smaller extinctions along the way and since they were around for so long we don't really have that with very many other animals where you can actually measure how these extinction events affected their evolution and affected their distribution around the world and sort of which forms succeeded the most. So I think that's a really interesting thing that you can look at, just sort yeah. of an overall evolutionary side of things. But in terms of their environment, there's also other factors like flowering plants, angiosperms evolved basically during the Cretaceous. So the Triassic and the Jurassic dinosaurs didn't have that selective pressure of these plants available potentially for eating or replacing plants that they might have wanted to eat before or, you know, been biologically adapted to eating. So you see actually at the end of the Cretaceous, things like ceratopsians, like triceratops, and things like hadrosaurs, so hadrosaurus or the other 
lambiosaurs like Parasaurolophus were doing really well. They were diversifying a lot. They seemed to be evolving. There was a lot of new species coming about, where some of the other dinosaur species actually were declining. And so a lot of research in this area will look at, well, would the dinosaurs have gone extinct if the asteroid hadn't impacted mm. Earth and, you know, kicked off this huge climate change for about a decade around the world and, you know, basically like nuclear winter? Or were they already in decline anyway, and maybe they would have gone extinct anyway? And I think, I tend to think that that's sort of an oversimplification because dinosaurs were so diverse that really, yes, some of them were not thriving and other ones were doing really well because of this change in plants. But that change in plants seems to have affected like the types of teeth dinosaurs had, as well as, you know, which groups were doing really well. And you can, it's just, that's a very interesting piece. So maybe even just by looking at what's going on inside dinosaurs' mouths, we might be able to tell what's going on with the evolution of plants <laughs> at that point in time. Yeah, and uh, and that's a really important aspect as well to understand the, the, the flora that existed. Uh, but obviously... We know that technically dinosaurs didn't go extinct because mm-hmm. uh, we have them around today uh, as birds. But um, I think it's well. Let me ask you this question: So, do you think that su- suppose you know there'd been no asteroid or equivalent sort of uh, catastrophic uh, event around that time, w- would there still be a play? I mean, you don't know how much it would have changed other things, but let's sort of assume that the rest of the ecosystem sort of changed similarly to how it eventually did. Uh, would there still be a place in um, today's ecosystem for like non-avian dinosaurs or is it is it imaginable that they're still around um what do you think yeah i think definitely mostly because they were fairly adaptable they also yeah. were basically endotherms so they were good at regulating their own body temperature we think they actually had maybe higher body temperatures than we do and so they would have been able to handle hotter environments for sure And in terms of whether or not they could have survived ice ages, I think so, because they, again, they were pretty varied. Some of them made nests that they could sit on and incubate eggs, so they wouldn't have had that sort of pressure of, you know, the the young would die on their own. And they had, a lot of them had feathers, so they had some good insulation. We know that there were dinosaurs that lived at the poles during the Mesozoic, so they could survive for basically months without much sunlight and in pretty cold temperatures, potentially even in the snow, some people think. So yeah, I think they were very adaptable and they were pretty capable of surviving in a lot of these environments. And there isn't really anything around today that's that different in terms of temperature or things like that. The main difference is plants, honestly. So one of the big differences, we have a lot of grassland now we didn't have grass in the Mesozoic. So that's another one of those funny mistakes some people make is they'll show dinosaurs like grazing on grass. There was no grass to be eaten in the Mesozoic. So they might have some difficulty today getting beyond these big grasslands, basically. You know, they might not have much to eat trying to get across like the steppe or something like that. Um, so that might be a barrier to them. But I think in general, yeah, most of the ecosystems today, they probably would have fit decently well in if they had survived. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, obviously, it's ecosystems are so complicated, it's sort of hard to yeah. make speculations. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. I think we one of the things that interests me is we don't we don't see, well, I, I sort of said before, we don't see very many large uh, reptiles anymore. Um, but uh, maybe that's not... Maybe that's just, well, yeah, I mean, modern reptiles are also different to, to dinosaurs as well, uh, being mm-hmm. cold-blooded, so that's maybe not a fair comparison. But yeah, anyway, it's interesting to think about. Um, yeah, that's a good point, because we do, when we, whenever we're trying to look at dinosaurs and figure out 
what they might have been like on a biological level, we basically have to work between crocodilians mostly mm. and birds. And they're both so different from dinosaurs because yeah. like you said, crocodilians are mostly cold-blooded, they're mostly aquatic, and birds are mostly small and they're hyper-specifically adapted to flight. Even the flightless mm. ones still have tons of those adaptations in their body. So that might tell us a little bit about a very specific subset of dinosaurs that were on that same branch of the evolutionary tree. But for things like, yeah, like sauropods, long-necked dinosaurs, it's like we have nothing. Usually people use elephants. That's like the scientific <laughs> equivalent. They're like, yeah, that's not, like the best. Close. <laughs> no, not at all. Like they sort of are in a similar ecological niche, kind of, but they're not even necessarily eating the same types of things at all. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that actually, that actually raises a question. So, um, you know, the sauropods, well, at least pretty much all the ones I've seen, have very long necks, um, whereas mm -hmm. the large, um, large, um, large mammals that also, uh, you know, herb herbivorous, they, well, the giraffe being an obvious exception, but most of them don't have very long necks. So what, why did sauropods have such long necks? Was it to reach up to trees or what, what were they doing with them? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think in some cases it was to reach higher in trees and that's just that typical niche partitioning, like with a giraffe, yeah. if you can reach high and they can't, you know, you can eat something different. But in a lot of cases, they think that they didn't really raise their necks that high and maybe it was an efficiency sort of gain like sweeping back and forth. You don't have to move your huge body around if you just have to move your lightweight <laughs> head. It's like it's a interesting. Really funny life hack. But I think the bigger thing might be like why mammals can't because it does seem like it could be a big advantage. And one of the things that's really cool about dinosaurs and why it annoys me when people use the term dinosaur to like imply this like lower evolutionary state you know, as evolution. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or like, yeah, like Neanderthal, people do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> where, because dinosaurs could breathe in this amazing way that birds still can, where it's, they call it unidirectional airflow, where basically when they breathe in, they're not only filling their lungs, but they also fill all these air sacs in their body that sort of- I didn't know dinosaurs had air sacs. Yeah, yeah, especially sauropods. Yeah. We can see the, the air sac, they call them, um, diverticulae, I think, I can't remember, but you can see the invasions of the air sacs into the vertebrae and into oh. some of the other spots. So you can tell that they had these air sacs. The same thing happens in birds today, which is how you can tell the comparison. And so they would fill all their air sacs. And then when they breathe out, the air sacs fill the lungs. So they're still getting fresh oxygen as that right. oxygen leaves from the lungs too. So in that way, when sauropods breathe in and breathe out, they don't have to wait for that air to get all the way down their long neck right, and they're right. not like sort of holding their breath that whole time. They're still exchanging oxygen. So the fact that us, you know, tidal breathers, as it's <laughs> called, you know, things go in and they go out like <laughs> yeah, the right. tide, we're limited in that way that dinosaurs aren't. So maybe that makes a limitation on our neck length that they didn't have. Yeah, interesting. Uh, it's just something I've I've wondered because, uh, yeah, the, the, body, the body plan is quite different, especially if you've there's different aspects going on. Um, convergent evolution can sometimes mean that different types of animals adapting to a similar niche often l can end up look similar, looking similar or having similar adaptations, flight being an example of that. But uh, yeah, in the case of like large, um, large herbivores, the, um, the sauropods do look very different to, yeah. um, to large mammals uh, that occupy, well, I don't know if you can say similar, but at least comparable niches in terms yep. of um, grazes and such. So yeah, it's, it's something that I've wondered about. Um, yeah. I don't think we have a good answer for it. Just like we don't have a great answer for why T-Rex had such small arms. Yeah, well, that's that's another one. That's it. It is very. It's almost like if you were to design a very 
uh, a sort of scary looking predator. T-Rex is pretty much it, except for the arms. The arms look yeah. like you've just you not put the effort in. Like, come on. <laughs> Clearly, the arms need to be scarier than that. It just, it just doesn't look like it matches. Yeah. Um, you ran out of ink before yeah. you got to the arms <laughs> kind very, of thing. Yeah, it's it's very weird. And I, I was just reading it. it is, so it's thought that the arms were kind of vestigial, that they didn't really do much with them. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's, that's one of the proposals. I've heard so many different... I've read so many papers mm. and they... They're not converging on like usually right. in the scientific <laughs> literature, you, you can sort of see a direction to the study. Um, I, for a while, the common belief was, OK, T-Rex had a huge head and it again is sort of a teeter totter with the tail, yeah. you know, like the front and the back. So if it had huge arms, then it would have been too front heavy. So maybe as its head got yeah, bigger, its arms got smaller. But we've recently found like more fossils and we see that the arms started shrinking before the head really got to a point where that oh, would make sense. So that isn't the answer. And then there were one of the first hypotheses was they were like claspers for mating so that, <laughs> you know, it would grab onto the back of the female if it's mm. the male to sort of like get some stability during mating. But it's not nearly strong enough to do that. I've, I've heard other hypotheses that like well, they had pretty long claws, so it could be that it's sort of a defense mechanism. So if you're like, if something, if you're fighting something or trying to defend yourself, if it gets beyond your face, you're sort of open for attack in your neck area. So it would be useful to have something there to sort of defend yourself. And maybe the arms were useful for that, but not much else. So they didn't need to be that long. But I think in general, you're right. It seems that their evolution was focused on other things, and mm -hmm. so the arms were less important. So putting resources into growing big, strong arms just wasn't there because we see it in other dinosaurs that had big, impressive skulls too. Like I was talking about the Carcharodontosaurids, the Allosaurus relatives. Um, Carnotaurus famously has really, really small arms, even smaller than T-Rex. And it seems like, well, it's probably, again, it was using its mouth for what it needed to use its mouth for. And hmm. usually another animal, its ancestors may have used its hands for part of that purpose and it no longer needed them. But yeah, we really don't know for sure. It's a big mystery. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, another question actually that I uh, have about the T-Rex is that there's, uh, people talk about how much it was a scavenger versus uh, a predator. And mm -hmm. obviously those aren't mutually exclusive. One thing that I, don't quite understand maybe this just reflects my ignorance about uh, about scavenging is i mean th there's obviously nothing inconsistent about doing some scavenging if you're a predator we sort of talked about earlier that if you know you can find an easy meal why wouldn't you take that um but if it was sort of primarily a scavenger what i don't understand is why it would need such huge powerful jaws um mm. i would have thought that that would be particularly useful for um you know immobilizing and catching prey uh but is that necessarily correct like is it a jaws that large consistent with being mostly a scavenger like how, how does that work i guess in the in terms of the jaw strength it would probably be sort of an argument for like a hyena type thing where like hyenas have fairly strong jaws too and they're eating a lot of bone so people oh, have described right, right. yeah and uh t-rex too we think we have coprolite or fossilized uh feces from a t-rex that has a lot of bone in it so Presumably, maybe they were eating a fair amount of bone, hmm. but I will say the hypothesis of T-Rex being a scavenger was the man who came up with that hypothesis. I asked him about it 
one day and he said really that was meant to be a thought experiment i didn't mean it to <laughs> <laughs> i had i didn't know that <laughs> i didn't mean it to be like take it off so right. when it got published he did publish it and people ran with it as like okay t-rex is now a scavenger you know it wasn't actually a predator but really it's like it's like you were saying it probably was a scavenger some of the time and it does have adaptations and the ability to scavenge. So it certainly would have scavenged some of the time. It wasn't just this ferocious, I'm going to kill something and walk away from it. It was yeah. the opposite of that where it was like, I'm going to kill something and eat it. And if I stumble across something that's been a walked away from, I'll eat that too. Mm. <laughs> sort of. That's how I take it at least. Yeah. Interesting. In, in Jurassic Park, they have this... I'm um, just going on T-Rex questions now. In Jurassic Park, they have this um, interesting, uh, I don't know, ability mechanic thing where the, the T-Rex sort of only can see you when you move. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that that's not, that's not accurate about the T-Rex. I'm not really sure where that came from. I'm just wondering, is that thought... To, is that even a thing for any type of dinosaur or even animal more broadly that the that vision is based on movement i'm not really sure how that would even work it always seemed a bit strange to me but i just wondered whether there's a kernel of truth to that the, i would say there's there's not a kernel yeah. of truth to the, just the, yeah just yeah the simple that's answer. what i suspected yeah because they they did have like some of the best vision of really any land animal they had eyes that were bigger than basically any land animal or i think any land animal period they were about the size of a grapefruit like five inches, oh, wow. or I, I think, didn't know that was so big. What was it 15 centimeters or 12 centimeters in diameter? Yeah, really big eye and weighed over a kilo, I think. So, like, very large eye. And we think that they mostly hunted by sight, by just their overall hmm. look, although they probably had a good sense of smell too, which is another funny thing in Jurassic Park because it can't smell them when they're, you know, right next to him, basically. So, he probably could have smelled them. Yeah, so though I wonder too. if T Rex would recognize what what we smell like relative to what it's used to what it's prey it's a good point like so who knows i guess there's always that that it's too different but yeah the idea that it can't see you if you're right in front of it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because it would still need to perceive its environment whether that was moving or not so it did seem a bit strange but i just wondered where that where that even came from (laughs) i heard one time where it came from and i it was some animal that mostly uses vision to detect motion which i want to say is a, a type of snake but i'm not sure it was something where it was like, it's mostly going by smell, but it can notice things that are moving by vision. So it's sort of like an animal that really isn't using its vision for much. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it can still detect motion, but that's clearly not the case with T-Rex. It was definitely using its vision for a lot. Yeah, and I, th- I think I remember, was it, is it frogs that people were studying the, the vision where it's mostly based on recognizing flies or something? Maybe it wasn't a frog. Oh, interesting. Anyway. It could have been frogs. Yeah. It goes back to the frog DNA again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that would be... Yeah, bit of a, but anyway, yeah, I, I didn't think that made a lot of sense, but I was just wondering. Yeah, so I mean, a a, a a predator like that is going to need good eyesight, so yeah, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, yeah, especially then when they have raptors in the movie, which have good vision, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's it true because be, they're pretty close relatives. Yeah, well, it would be odd for that such a dramatic difference when the the niche isn't that much different. Anyway, um, yeah, so you know, Jurassic Park mostly does pretty well, but there are a few things that they included in there for. Uh, for dramatic effect, um, yeah. I suppose. Although, yeah, the, the visual one is particularly interesting because I don't know what the big dramatic payoff is. I, I guess it's the whole thing like, well, you, you have to be still even though you want to run away kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. What It might be... Yeah. 
you can show it on screen, right? You can show them yeah, next yeah, to the T-Rex for a while in that dramatic moment. <laughs> well, what would the best advice be if, if a T-Rex decided that you looked like a good snack? What should you do? I always figured I that, it, well, that my, uh, what I thought mm-hmm. is wh- why not just hide under something that, where it can't get you? It's not like it can grab you or anything. I mean, it's, if, it's, if it's a small space, its head won't fit, then it seems like that would work. But maybe there's a, maybe you have another idea. I think you're 100% right because as people that you know study the mammals of the Mesozoic sometimes point out, essentially while the dinosaurs were dominating the earth, the mammals spent most of that time in burrows, yeah. just hiding <laughs> hiding yeah. from all the stuff that wanted to eat them. So yeah, a burrow, if you could find one, would be a great choice. I think also they weren't sort of like if you're trying to run from an elephant, trying to sort of outmaneuver it in terms of back Mm. and forth or like a gazelle running from a cheetah sort of thing like can you turn faster than they can turn which i think you could and then honestly if you're running in any sort of environment that isn't an open savanna there's going to be some kind of obstacle that hopefully you can kind of get behind and or climb t-rex isn't going to climb anything after you either yeah well that's what i was thinking that, that there seem to be quite a few options um that aren't always aren't always pursued, but uh, I guess it would be a bit anticlimactic if the T Rex comes and everyone just scurries up a tree or under a, yeah. a, a branch or something and it can't get any of them. <laughs> so yeah, it could be kind of funny, I suppose. But yeah, it's a good example of how like those the oversimplification of like it was the ultimate predator. Yeah. It's like, well, it was the ultimate predator of something, not of everything. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that comes back to the, this point about understanding the the context in which the dinosaurs live, because it doesn't. The idea of an ultimate predator doesn't even really make much sense, because things that are mm-hmm. going to be advantageous in certain environments or niches or contexts won't be in in others. Um, short of something that's like a shapeshifter, I suppose, <laughs> but mm-hmm. that's a bit far fetched. You, you can't be the ultimate predator in every environment. Um, so, if you are are able to um, move into an environment where the um, uh, the predator is not adapted, then that will uh, that will be to your advantage. And I guess that's one area where humans are very good because we are adaptable across a range of environments and very intelligent and so able to sort of, you know, make those sorts of uh, plans and deductions that uh, can be to our benefit, which is one reason why I always find it a bit... Um, I mean, I think they do it quite well in the Jurassic Park book where they, they explain that, you know, that they have very few people on the island. They don't really understand the dinosaurs very well and it's been mismanaged and all this other stuff. So you can kind of understand how things go down. But um, the idea that happens in some of the some of the sequels where the dinosaurs like get loose on, on the mainland and then I, I, and then people have trouble dealing with them. I mean, it would be a bit of a shock, but the idea that, you know, particularly with modern firearms, we wouldn't be able to deal with dinosaurs very easily, I, I think is a bit a bit silly, but... <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's another flaw in Jurassic Park occasionally, especially in the later movies, is that they seem to be bulletproof. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, well, that I think that is a phenomenon of many monsters in yeah. modern movies that they just kind of make them bulletproof. Although sometimes it's selective depending on what the writers need at a given time. But yeah, that's yeah, uh, that's a little disappointing. Um, I think also just horror movies in general, right? The bad guy true, falls yeah. down, he just gets back up. Doesn't matter what <laughs> happened to him. Well, th- that could be a whole other episode. That fire. I think I talked a little bit about this on one of my episodes before. But firearms are not depicted very accurately in movies. Yeah, finally, yeah. finally enough, maybe less accurately than dinosaurs some of the time. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Like the people going flying through window. The, that's the a conservation classic one. of momentum. That's a classic is, one. Yeah, which is very bizarre. Unless you're getting hit by a cannonball, you're probably not yeah. moving much. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I think yeah, in the in the battle between man and dinosaurs, man would. I mean, I think honestly, we probably dinosaurs wouldn't exist because we would have um, hunted them to extinction. At least many of the larger yeah. ones, like we have with other megafauna. Let's be honest. <laughs> it's like sadly yes. enough, and it is one of those things too, where it's it would be hard for humans to coexist with any sort of large predatory dinosaurs. Mm. So, like you said, we might just hunt them to extinction, or they hunt us to extinction yeah. before we evolved all our Maybe. tools to drive them to extinction. Maybe. We'd still be in trees. They, they, they should have got our ancestors when they could, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, dear. Is there anything else you wanted to uh, add or comment on? I think probably... I guess I do have... I am a little interested, too, in what you might think of in terms of the evolution of dinosaurs and not whether they would exist in today's environment, but if you have any opinions on like how they might change, like what what sort of pressures do you see in today's environment if you plopped one of these old dinosaurs in it? Is there anything you think might, what the pressures on them might be? Hmm. Ooh, uh, that is a hard question to answer. I think I think one of the main things would be that the the world is, well, I was going to say the world is full of different species. I mean, humans are doing our best to, <laughs> to undo that. But, I mean, there's still a lot of species. Um, yeah. And, you know, many niches are already quite full. So the, the challenge is going to be how do dinosaurs fit into that? So, I mean, you, you can have mm -hmm. circumstances, obviously, where an invasive species is introduced and it outcompetes existing uh, existing species, like has happened with um, uh, different species that were introduced in Australia, for example, um, like rabbits and foxes. Uh, cane toad being being another example um but uh you know whether dinosaurs would be like that or whether they would just struggle um to to find uh to find a niche in modern ecosystems is, is a bit hard for me to say uh, one thing is that i do tend to think that because they were adapted to such different environments they it, it seems like they probably would struggle in a lot of modern environments um hmm. uh just yeah because the, the plant life is different the atmosphere is different the animals they're interacting with are different uh so just plopping them down i i find it hard to imagine that they're, they're going to become invasive in many environments but there are lots of environments so maybe there's some um I, I tend to think that the smaller dinosaurs probably have more of a chance because they don't require as you know they don't have to eat as much basically the, the larger ones is always uh, there's so much um the, the trophic trophic pyramid is that what it's called the oh yeah yeah that, that has to sit beneath them in order to to support like one large carnivore um and all of that kind of food chain has to um kind of uh work biologically like none of them can drive the others to extinction and so forth it's a bit, sort of a delicate balance right um so the smaller dinosaurs i think would would probably find it easier um hmm. but um you know it's a great point in which case they maybe they could adapt to similar environments that we already see reptiles or small birds uh small birds in but um, that's also kind of less exciting. <laughs> yeah, less exciting. One thing that uh, one thing we haven't really talked about are um, are uh, marine dinosaurs, or I, I think many of them weren't actually dinosaurs, but like um, plesiosaur uh, and things that lived around the same time. I have very little idea of how viable those would be in in today's oceans. Um, oh yeah. So that's another interesting. I mean, depending on who you ask, maybe there are some of them out there still. But oh yeah, like Loch Ness. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting around in locks that didn't exist when they were last known to <laughs> yep. be. It doesn't really make for much sense, but, you know, it's a nice idea. But <laughs> Yeah. But, yeah, uh, honestly, though, if, the, if there were if there were to be, um, like, dinosaur or dinosaur-era animals that existed, it would be somewhere in the oceans um, because, it, what was it? It was the, um, what was that fish that was discovered only in the 20th oh, century? The, the coelacanth? The coelacanth, that's the one, yes. 
which is just insane that that was still around when people thought it was extinct like hundreds of millions of years ago. So yeah. um, that that would be the, the place where I think maybe maybe they something could still be around. But uh, yeah. Like the movie The Meg. Yeah, I haven't seen that. But uh, well, yeah, that, that's the thing about some of those movies that the, the idea that there is some, you know, some species out in the ocean that we didn't know about is the kind of plausible. Um, but th- then they always make it too extreme and too <laughs> too kind of over the top especially when they make them so large that again they would rec- yeah. they would have to eat so much that it's sort of a bit harder to understand uh how that would work yeah there's a really good point about them feed- fitting into today's ecosystems because usually i think people think of course if t-rex was around today it could eat anything so of course it would it would thrive mm. but really like you said it would have to manage to fit into that ecosystem and eat so much that's a, that's a very demanding and sort of unlikely situation to get into. Whereas if you could have some small animal like that mostly ate, it was omnivorous, you know, it might be able to survive on multiple different plants and didn't need to eat the entire <laughs> top of the trophic yeah. pyramid <laughs> in order to survive. That's a much more likely situation for something that could survive today. So it won't be the meg at the bottom of the ocean. It'll be like some really small ichthyosaur or something that went under the radar although i guess the difficult thing with reptiles unlike the coelacanth is that they all breathe air so they all have to come to the surface so Mm. presumably with all the fishing we've done all over the world we would have accidentally caught one of these at some point (laughs) yeah probably uh well one can dream (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) yeah no that's probably a good good place to end it um well uh yeah it was a Excellent discussion. I, I certainly learned some things, so that was yeah, fun. that was great. <laughs> um, m- maybe uh, if you wanted, we could each just say a bit about our podcast. Uh, sure, as yeah. Little spruik at the end. I'll let you go first. Oh, uh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. Well, I um, uh, again, my name's James. I run the Science of Everything podcast. Uh, I mean, if you just Google the Science of Everything podcast, you should be able to find uh, my website there. Um, on my podcast, I cover a wide range of topics, so it's very much a generalist podcast. I like to kind of pick a, a topic and then cover it in some depth. Um, so, for example, uh, it was mentioned I did one on um, biochemistry of nutrition recently, or yeah, of um, metabolism particularly. Um, so, I talked about the different types of biochemical reactions and uh, how the different types of uh, molecules are uh, processed by the body and so forth. And uh, so, you know, I'll pick a topic like that and go through that in an hour or so. So uh, if that's the sort of thing that sounds interesting to you, uh, check out my show. And oh, by the way, I haven't done an episode on dinosaurs yet, but it, it is it is on the list of things to cover. But I, <laughs> one of the things I wanted to do first was cover um, the geological time scale and talk about the time period when dinosaurs lived, because I don't think you can understand it very well uh, without understanding that. So there's a few prerequisites I want to cover first, but we, we will get there someday. Nice. Yeah, it's a fantastic show. And my show is called I Know Dino. It's K-N-O-W-D-I-N-O. So it's a rhyming fun thing for (laughs) I Know About Dinosaurs. And (laughs) every week, my wife and I talk about dinosaur discoveries. There's a new dinosaur discovered almost every week. We're currently in the golden age of dinosaurs. That's a fun fact most people don't realize. They think we've already found all the dinosaurs, but it's not true. We're still finding new dinosaurs all the time. And there's also always new research going on about things like you know, was Spinosaurus a swimmer or was it a terrestrial predator sort of thing? So if you're interested in dinosaurs, I recommend our podcast if you're looking for a new podcast. And you can find it at iknowdino.com or if you just Google dinosaur podcast, we should pop up there as well. And 
yeah, I can. We can talk about dinosaurs, learn about dinosaurs together. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for the conversation. It was very interesting. So that's the end of the discussion that I had. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Uh, there will be more coverage of dinosaurs in the future, uh, perhaps in a year or two, uh, when I get around to that. Um, for those who are wondering about the other series that we've been working on lately, uh, such as Diet and Nutrition and the first Climate Change episode, both of which I've mentioned in recent episodes they are still coming out soon so the first climate change episode i'm hoping to release uh, in january that's taken lots and lots of research but it's uh, finally coming together so look forward to that that'll be coming out soon diet and nutrition as well that i promised a few months ago uh, will be coming out uh, hopefully early next year Another thing to look forward to is the follow-up episode to General Relativity in our series there. So there are quite a lot of episodes in the pipeline, so don't worry. Um, recently had a lot of uh, things going on with Moving House and other stuff, so I, unfortunately I haven't had quite as much time for the podcast as I would have liked, but never fear, uh, the science content uh, will continue. So. Uh, thanks very much for listening. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so in a number of ways. You can leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or the aggregator of your choice. Those are always appreciated. Uh, you can make a financial contribution to the podcast via becoming a Patreon supporter, or you can make a one, one-off donation via PayPal. Uh, financial contributions are greatly appreciated, and at the moment I'm using them to support a team of editors that I have working on adding images to to the audio podcast for uploading to YouTube. And that's a project that's been um, going on for a, a, over a year now. And uh, we're at the point where I'm ready to start uploading uh, to, to the channel. So that will be exciting. I'll, I'll make a special announcement when I actually do that. But that's um, what your financial contributions will go to support the editing work there to hopefully bring the podcast in a slightly modified format to a new audience. So that's really exciting. And we'll be starting on that uh, in a month or two, uh, getting those uploaded. You're also very welcome to send me an email. My address is fods12 at gmail.com. That's, that's F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. Uh, feel free to send any suggestions, feedback, uh, or just let me know how you listen to the show. Um, so thanks once again for listening. Uh, take care, everyone. I'll talk to you next time.